Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Gregory Schill, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Iowa College of Law. We'll be discussing his recent article, Should Law Subsidize Driving?, which is forthcoming in the New York University Law Review. This article has a companion piece in The Atlantic titled, America Shouldn't Have to Drive, But the Law Insists on It. I'll include links to both articles in the show notes for today's episode. Greg, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. So great to be here. Greg, the title of your article is Should Law Subsidize Driving? That implies, I suppose, that law does, in fact, subsidize driving. Could you discuss how law subsidizes driving and how did we get to that place? Sure. So basically, every field of law that you would have studied in law school helps subsidize driving, plus a few more. So to start with traffic law, I won't go through the full laundry list, but basically traffic law significantly privileges the motorist over other people who are traveling in other modes. Zoning includes mandates against dense construction that lead to a landscape of unwalkable terrain uh, and a lot of empty pavement because they also require a lot of parking. Um, environmental law, which we can get into more deeply if there's time, promotes larger vehicles that are ironically more polluting. Vehicle design law, which is structured only around the safety of the occupants of the vehicle, not even occupants of other vehicles, and certainly not people who are walking or using wheelchairs. Tort law, insurance law, tax law, criminal law, even admiralty law, arguably. I don't have it in the paper, but later learned about some provisions of admiralty law that uh, that probably contribute to the level and, and risk of driving on American roads. That's interesting about admiralty law, I guess, uh, even even when it comes to taking to the sea, there's still that subsidy. And, you know, as you mentioned, there's so, so many implications for law subsidy of driving. And I wanted to really focus in this conversation maybe on some of the political economy implications of that. But I, I wondered what are the social costs to society as a matter of political economy or as a matter of just civil society for law subsidization of, of driving? Who are the, the winners and losers there? Or are we all winners or are we all losers at the same time? We're all losers, but the distributional consequences aren't neutral. So let, let's start at the sort of societal level before we go deeper in terms of who's losing more than other people. So right now, 40,000 people a year are killed in car crashes. Uh, an additional four and a half million are severely injured. That is, they receive injuries that require medical attention. That is one death every 13 minutes or so just from crashes. But most of the damage that cars do is actually not inflicted in crashes. About 53,000 Americans are killed every year by pollution traceable solely to cars. So when you combine these figures, you get 93,000, which is the size of a pretty big college football stadium. It's bigger than ours here at the University of Iowa. And that amounts to one person, one American being killed by a car crash or car pollution every six minutes and one injury from a crash every seven seconds. So we have a public health crisis right now, but it's not only a public health crisis. We also have a climate catastrophe that is unfolding 
you know, I don't think we need to go into details about the extent of the climate damage and, and risk, particularly to future generations. But I don't know that many people know about the contribution from cars. There was a big New York Times piece yesterday that made this more vivid and allowed folks to look at how their region is doing versus 10, 20 years ago. But, you know, just the headline figure that private transportation is now the single largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. That's uh, that's a big deal. Uh, we have the ability to reduce it. And unfortunately, most of the energy around reducing it has been to subsidize things like electric vehicles. So if you want to buy a $100,000 electric Porsche, you can get a subsidy of, I think it's $6,700 for that. That might seem directionally nice, but in my opinion, that's not a particularly good use of resources. We're not getting the ROI on that kind of investment that we would from promoting transit, bus lanes, safe cycling infrastructure, walking infrastructure, and so forth. All of the kind of boring things that um, business leaders and politicians often don't like to talk about. I guess that gets into your political economy question. Most of the people that are most severely harmed by these things are not, frankly, they're not people like you and me. They're not people in good health, not white men. The people of color, senior citizens, children, uh, wheelchair users, poor people, they are all far more severely impacted than the overall population. Uh, wheelchair users are 36% more likely to be killed by motorists than are members of the overall population. Even after a recent study concluded that even after controlling for various differences, including uh, differences in walking rates, drivers strike and kill people over 50, African-Americans, American Indians and Native people, and people walking in lower median income communities at much higher rates than they do in other areas. And then for pollution, the differences are even starker because if you look where freeways were sited 50, 60, 70 years ago in every big city in America, they basically uprooted and kicked out poor people, people of color, and bisected their neighborhoods, literally uprooted them and destroyed their neighborhoods and schools and churches and so forth. Some people from those communities remain, and they are now living adjacent to these factories of noise and pollution and microplastics. It's not even just tailpipe emissions, which is what the EPA most tightly regulates. It's also PM 2.5 and PM 10, which are particulate matter emissions that come primarily from brake pads and tires and so aren't really affected by wouldn't you know we wouldn't improve that by switching over to electric vehicles even if we had the infrastructure to do that overnight so it's a big problem it's a problem for all of us but it is a bigger problem for folks in underserved communities people of disadvantage and um, you can't really get out of it it's uh, it's kind of like secondhand smoking I'm old enough to remember when restaurants had smoking sections and non-smoking sections. I'm old, I'm old enough to remember that, too. You remember that, too? So do you remember going in? I mean, there was a Denny's in Michigan where I grew up where we used to go after hours. It was like the only place you could get in if you were 16 after maybe 10 o'clock. The whole place reeked of smoke, even though they officially had a non-smoking section. So that's kind of the cities that we live in now is whether you're a driver or not. You're a secondhand driver. You're subject to secondhand driving everywhere in America. So you really can't opt out of this stuff. If you have unlimited resources, you can buy a bigger car. I mean, basically, the end point of this is we're all driving tanks and not walking anywhere. And that's that's terrible for basically every social welfare perspective. So get the sense of some of these 
things. I, there are a lot of other interesting angles. Um, gender is one. Uh, women on public transit, walking and biking, often don't have the protection that they need, and, and they are sometimes harassed, for example. Um, and transit agencies and transportation engineers don't necessarily take these things seriously. They don't take affirmative steps to you know, enhance security. They might do something like dispatch a cop, but they don't do things like improve visibility or lighting or have other kind of preventive devices. The, the transportation ecosystem is basically engineered to serve the interests of dominant groups. And that means basically your 1950s model sort of classic car commuting dad who's trying to get downtown as fast as possible from his suburb and then go back at the end of the day. And I I think the very best that could be said is it works okay for that person. I think that's debatable given levels of congestion and traffic deaths and other side effects, but it's not really working for most people right now. So driving is a practice uh, as an institution that creates externalities. And as people who live in the world, we all experience those externalities, although some experience them more than others. And of course, just as there are net losers with this institution, there are net winners. I wonder if you could discuss the role a bit of, of what you call motordom. Who is part of motordom? I, I hadn't heard that term before, but thought it was, it was pretty interesting. And I wonder if you could discuss whether this group, motordom, capital M, is sort of the driver uh, historically of these legal subsidies for driving, whether they engaged in rent-seeking behaviors to get us to this place, or if they are more a symptom uh, than the cause of some of these issues. And, uh, and maybe the, the driver, no pun intended, is more secular trends or consumer preferences. Yeah, so I think these things are are all jumbled up. The authority on this, on the history, is Peter Norton, who's a historian at UVA. He's written a great book called Fighting Traffic, detailing the rise of motordom. By the way, that term was chosen by the auto interests themselves when they began to develop a common consciousness um, and organized across industries. So here I'm talking about automobile manufacturing but also suppliers, the oil industry, trucking, uh, highway construction, insurance, uh, and other, the tire industry. These are all major industries that did not, they may have perceived themselves to be aligned, but starting in the 1920s, they formally cooperated and mounted a concerted political effort to make America safe for ubiquitous driving and dependency on the automobile. Now, that movement, by the way, started as a reaction. Cars were not initially popular. They were sort of toys used by the elite. Starting in the 1910s, that changed with the Model T becoming increasingly common. But they were still killing very large numbers of people, particularly children, particularly in cities. There was a front page editorial in the New York Times with a stylized image of the angel of death. And he's driving a car over the bodies of dead children. And it says, you know, something about man killing well, a different one talks about man killing automobilists. The, the headline of the editorial I just mentioned is nation roused against motor killings. It talks about how Herbert Hoover had convened a national conference on reducing motor killings, which is the term used at the time for when a driver would kill a somebody who was walking in the street. Um, we don't even have a term today for that sort of thing. We just, you know, the, the best term we would use is accident, which of course is conclusory in that it assumes that more than it was that it was unintentional, but that it wasn't even um, negligent or reckless. And so it, it has a kind of exonerating term. And was this, where did consumer preference come into this? 
So that's why I think it's a complicated story. We could talk about the 1910s, 20s, and 30s indefinitely. At some point, they were successful. The the architects of what is now our regime, which is our, our 20th century transportation system. And so once they succeeded in introducing cars everywhere, what that meant was that streetcars, which shared space in the street with previously with street vendors, people walking, people on horseback, and small number of drivers. Now they were stuck behind large numbers of drivers. And so being a streetcar became very inefficient. It was previously quite efficient as a way to get around town. And, and everywhere in America has streetcars. Big cities that you don't associate with public transit today, like Los Angeles, you know, Los Angeles had the largest streetcar system in the nation. Uh, Ohio had a very well-developed interurban railroad system that was the envy of many other parts of the country. But these things began, their efficiency was degraded because the automobile took over the same spaces. And so at some point, the streetcar loses its advantage over the automobile because it's just stuck behind cars. Now, that's that's a political choice. That's not inevitable. All you need to do is do what New York did with the uh, subway, which is make it grade separated. And if you do that, then it won't get stuck behind anybody. But places that didn't do that, which is a lot of places, you know, their streetcar systems became unusable. They also had statutes in many places that limited the ability of streetcar companies, which were not highly regarded at the time. They were seen as monopolists and they were widely disliked because they had so much power. There were legislative responses to prevent them from raising the fare beyond a nickel for decades. And so they went bankrupt. And so, you know, th there was kind of a death spiral there. At some point, consumer preference begins to play a role. But I think it's hard to tell a story where consumer preference is at the center. And here's why. All of these different areas of law compel additional accommodation for cars and for driving well beyond what the market would demand by definition. So, for example, parking quotas, which require developers to build, when they build, say, an apartment building, they also have to build housing for cars in the same building. So why require that? If people who live in the building want parking spaces, then the developer, who is a capitalist out to make money, is going to build parking spaces. But in this peculiar area of the economy, as Donald Shoup says, he's a, an economist at UCLA in an urban planning uh, capacity, you know, parking is weird. Parking turns ardent conservatives into communists. There, you know, we have a central planning model for parking, including on private property. And so that suggests that the, you know, we have all this infrastructure built up partly because of mandates as opposed to preferences. That matters on a few levels. I mean, one is the conceptual or formal level. If it's required, then that implies that the market can't really work. But also because so much parking is required, the methods that they use to measure how much parking they think is needed are too generous to parking. Because so much parking is required, it all ends up being free. There's really a tiny minority of spaces in any city um, where parking is not free. And even in those places, it tends to be free most of the time. Um, it's just, it might not. So for example, in Iowa City, you pay for parking eight to six, Monday to Saturday. So most of the week, you know, that's uh, 14 hours a day for six days, plus 24 hours on Sunday, we run a free parking program. And that's very common, even in big cities. So this is a story from a political economy standpoint, perhaps of of rent-seeking on the part of motordom. I, I assume, though, that the world that we live in, in terms of the subsidies of, of driving, 
isn't the result of some grand and detailed plan hatched out in the 1910s and 1920s. Could you maybe discuss some of the role that path dependence might have played in us getting to this point? And if we are on a dependent path toward vehicle supremacy, driving supremacy, what does that mean for alternative technologies, business models, entrepreneurs who might want to disrupt that supremacy? Is that even really something that we could conceive of or that's possible? I think the parking example is a good illustration of this. By mandating high quantities of parking, planners have eliminated the possibility of a market for parking. And so that means that parking becomes free in most residential and commercial contexts. And you, know, you can't really charge for something if it's oversupplied. That does create a path dependency in the sense it's like a structural subsidy to car ownership. It also creates a landscape that is just filled with parking. So in Houston, for example, there are 30 parking spaces per person. That means at any given time you're at home listening to this podcast, there are 30 different places in town where your car could be parked. Most of them, almost all of them for free. And that's true for everybody else. So it, the landscape is tons of empty pavement, parking craters, as they're known, even in central cities. It becomes unpleasant or even unsafe to walk uh, long distances because there are we have very wide roads now, and you may have to walk a considerable distance because there is so much uh, anti-dense construction mandated by these uh, by these quotas. By the way, many cities have rolled them back, either abolished them entirely or have relaxed them. I shouldn't say many, but it's a growing trend. In some big cities and some you wouldn't think of like Hartford, Connecticut and Buffalo, New York. So I do think, you know, once you change that rule, then it suddenly becomes able, possible to build more densely on that land. And that that is one possibility for reversing that that example of path dependency. We also, you know, these, these are choices, these different areas of law I mentioned and, and other policies like dumping billions and billions of dollars on highways a year and underfunding transit and charging people to take the bus, but not charging people to drive even into the central business district at peak times. Those are political choices. We can reverse those things. So I think there's a lot that we can do in terms of the ability of entrepreneurs to disrupt it. It's hard. We see this right now in every big city where Uber and Lyft were allowed more or less to come in and do what they want. And so you know, there's, there are minimal restrictions on what they do. And they have, in some cases, some slight tax, additional taxes that they pay. But they're very lightly regulated. And that's because the system treats them like cars, uh, which it's not hard to see why political elites do that. But compare that to scooters. So the scooter companies, electric scooter companies have been hyper-regulated, even banned from many cities in the country. In Chicago right now, there are certain geofence parts of the city. You can't take the scooter. They shut off at 10 o'clock and the operators have to go pick them up. And that's all during a pilot period, after which time they have no authority to continue operating at all. That's a total departure from the way cities treat Uber and Lyft. I think in California, the amount of taxes and fees that scooter companies are subject to is something like 30 times what Uber and Lyft are subject to. So, you know, we've, we have made choices going back a century that prioritize driving, but we're continuing to do it today. So, there is path dependency. I don't want to suggest this can be fixed overnight, but there's a lot that we can do and a lot of bad things we can stop doing and a lot of good things we could do, like investing in bus lanes and bus service and in implementing congestion pricing and flushing cars out of the center of big cities like New York has now done on 14th Street um, to everyone's delight, even people, many people who were 
skeptical of it before it launched last week. So I think there are real opportunities there. It's hard though, use the word disrupt. That's typically a reference to the way you know tech companies might come in uh, or other entrepreneurs. It's just, it's hard to disrupt infrastructure. It's a public utility. So it's just difficult for a scooter company or a bike share company to do anything about the basic physical fact that sharing space with three, four, 8,000 pound vehicles or even semis up to 80,000 pounds, you know, they're going multiples of your speed. That's just an inherently dangerous activity. We don't do that for pedestrians in, you know, in most places, or at least a lot of built up places, we have sidewalks. We should do the same for people who are biking or taking scooters, doing other things that reduce our carbon footprint to, to make them safe, to build real protected infrastructure, not paint on you know, three foot wide literally marginal lane on the side of the road in the gutter that's often blocked by double parkers. We need real infrastructure. And that's not really the kind of thing that a private company can do. In some places, they partnered. Some of the scooter companies, for example, have partnered with localities, but the barriers are not financial. It doesn't cost that much money to paint a lane and then put up planters or bollards, even plastic ones. Um, Some so-called tactical urbanists have gone and planted like toilet plungers to make safe bike lanes and scooter lanes. It's not expensive. So the barrier isn't really, you know, it's not like cities want to do it. They just don't have the cash and that's where the VCs can come in. The cities are conflicted because the politics around this stuff is really hard. Where it's succeeded, it's succeeded because you have leadership and people willing to do the change, not compromise on the important things and take the heat and move forward. And that's how we've gotten big progress that we've had to date. And we just, we need more of that. So it's, I'm a little skeptical of the role of private actors in that environment, given the constraints of public infrastructure. You offer a little bit of a hopeful note on our ability the opportunity of reversing some of the political choices that we've made. I wonder what that looks like uh, in terms of the alternative policies that we might decide. Is it a policy of indifference as between any type of any mode of transportation? And is that possible given the nature of transportation to tend to be networked? I would put this under the under the rubric of a right to walk or freedom of mobility as opposed to the mandate to drive. I think they could do a lot of things. And the solutions are going to be somewhat different place to place, but the goals are the same. So I'll give you an example of some local solutions. In Iowa, for example, there are a lot of collisions between cars and farm implements. And so Previously, most of the energy there was around making the farm implements more visible, but I don't know how much time you spend in rural roads. These things are enormous. They're highly visible, and yet people will sometimes drive straight into them at 50 miles an hour on a clear blue day. So lack of visibility isn't really the problem, but work can be done around driver behavior, including taking licenses from people who are proven to be dangerous drivers. Now, I wouldn't advocate enforcement as the primary part of a better strategy. Instead, what we need are just better choices for people, meaning you know, more realistic, practical ways for them to get around without driving. Once we provide that, we'll see mode share of bus, bike, walking, et cetera, increase and driving alone decrease. So a few things that that will work in a city uh, or in many suburbs uh, is a bus lane for one. So it sounds so boring and yet it's so hard to do because when there is no bus in the bus lane, it's very difficult for folks to understand 
that they shouldn't be driving in it. It looks like an empty lane. But if you have it reserved for buses and you run the buses pretty frequently, the capacity advantage is just staggering. They can move far higher number of people per hour than a car lane. And um, you know the figure is something like 10,000 to 25,000 people per hour versus 600 to 1,600 in a car lane. So you're, you're really talking about a thing like a 15 to 20 fold increase. You know that kind of win is available today. What's needed is the political will to do that. So you know, keeping the bus lane open even when there isn't a bus there at that time ensures that when the bus comes, it will be able to just go right through, and that means buses can stay on time and. And people will actually see an advantage to taking the bus. You're going to have to walk a little bit on the front end and on the back end, different from your car. Maybe, although if you're depending where you're driving, you might actually park five minutes walk or something from your destination. But in exchange, A, it'll be cheap and B, you get your time back. You can read on the bus and you'll get there faster if there's a dedicated lane. So prioritization of infrastructure. And so in cities, that looks like Bus lanes elsewhere, it might look like adding sidewalks that don't exist right now, shortening or rather lengthening crosswalk signals and shortening the actual physical crosswalks with changes to the design of the street. You may have seen this in some places. It's a a growing trend to use what are called bulb outs at the intersection that shorten the distance that somebody has to walk across the street. For you or me, that may not be a huge deal, although it is more comfortable. But for folks who have impairments or limited visibility or who have families, that can be a real game changer in terms of allowing them to cross the street before the light turns. So basically a whole suite of infrastructure and design improvements coupled with some smarter choices around enforcement uh, and reversing a number of these subsidies that I alluded to at the beginning. I think that that would really go a long way. And I think it's really a question of political will. People act like this stuff is preordained. There's no natural law that says we have to have 93,000 deaths a year and very long commute times and dirty air and microplastics. Recent studies said there are 7 trillion microplastics spewed in the San Francisco Bay every year, most of which are from cars, from car tires and brakes. That's not a law of nature. We can we can reverse that. So just as a lot of decisions and a lot of factors went into creating the overall subsidization of driving, a lot of a lot of acts and, and different methods are going to be needed to, to reverse that effect. Greg, what takeaways would you like listeners and, and readers of the paper to have from this article in terms of political economy? And if these are some issues that maybe surprise them or concern them, what can they do themselves to, to make a difference on that front? Well, first of all, you know, all of these problems are policy problems, meaning they are biggest in the aggregate. And so no individual can really undo them. But as with other social problems, there are things that one can do if one wants. I mean, the first thing, especially your listeners might be able to do is use some of your political capital to get involved and, you know, make a change. That could be if you're involved with local politics or you're on, say, the parking committee of your university or that is an option for you to join, something like that. That's one area where you can make a difference directly on policy. But most of us can't do that day to day. And so that's where I would say, you know, not to see this as a binary necessarily of drive versus don't drive. There are so few things in life that are black or white, and we often don't have a choice but to drive, but not always. And so think about times when 
there is another way to get where you're going or perhaps to carpool or to drive in a different way. So it turns out that increased rates of speed are highly correlated with crashes, especially killed and serious injury crashes, especially with people who are walking and biking. And so I would say particularly in neighborhoods, you know, if you're looking for things that you can do today, like don't speed. And I was behind somebody in a motorized wheelchair in downtown Iowa City. I was driving. This was in the winter last year. There was snow on the ground and ice. And unfortunately, this person had really had no choice but to be where they were because the sidewalks had been fenced off for construction. And uh, by the way, I later talked to the powers that be about that. And that was their policy that the their, their answer was this person should have gone six blocks out of their way so that they could cross this one street. But nobody, we don't have that expectation for anybody else. It would be weird if people really did follow that sort of advice. So what I did was I just drove really slowly behind this person so that nobody behind me would not see them and then potentially run into them. Uh, I waited until they got through the intersection and then they were able to get on the sidewalk. So you know, there are things like that, that if you want to feel like you're doing something every day, the opportunities really do exist. But the the larger point remains, which is that this is beyond it. Much like recycling, you know, that's like one thing that you can do yourself or your family. But the real change is going to come at the policy level. Our guest today has been Gregory Schill, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Iowa College of Law. We've discussed his recent article, Should Law Subsidize Driving?, which is forthcoming in the New York University Law Review. It has a companion piece in The Atlantic magazine, Americans Shouldn't Have to Drive, But the Law Insists on It, and I'll include links to both of those in the show notes for today's episode. Greg, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app. We'll let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.